Welcome back to In the Queue, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I'm your co-host, Phil, and tonight's film is not about the South American country that shares its name. No, it is not. You speak the truth, Phil. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm preaching. You speak the truth. And testify. Uh, I'm your co-host, Andrew, and this film only intensified my youthful love of all things Monty Python, even though I wouldn't say that this is in the tradition of Monty Python. That is so interesting. Although it partially is. It's still got, it's got Michael Palin and it's directed and written by Terry Gilliam. So yeah, there's a certain sensibility, a certain sense of humor that's common among the the two. Um, What we're talking about today is the film Brazil, which is actually uh, celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. It, it is. came out in 1985, directed by Terry Gilliam, as Andrew said, and it was a controversial film, um, and we're going to talk all about the film. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the setbacks and some of the obstacles Terry Gilliam faced in getting his masterpiece released as he saw it without any cuts. Should be a good discussion, and this is also part of our Criterion Critique series that we're doing, as this was reissued by the Criterion Collection. Indeed. So, but first, we would like to tell you where you can find us on the web. You can go to our blog at www.in-the-q, that's the letter Q, dot com. On our blog, you'll find all of our shows posted. You can participate in comments and uh, listener requests for movies you would like us to review. You can do some of those other things on our Facebook page. Just search Facebook for In The Queue. Q-U-E-U-E is how it's spelled. On our Facebook page, we post all of our shows. Uh, We post supplemental videos and other things that kind of riff off of what we're talking about that particular week. And uh, again, as with the blog, you can leave comments uh, and participate in discussions that go on. And we actually do honor all of our listener requests. Um, We've got like a a backlog of them but we're going through them all systematically every week we will honor your requests fear not please leave it for us we will indeed yes and then lastly you can go to itunes and subscribe to our podcast in the queue once again q u e u e film conversations with andrew and phil all of our shows are posted there dating back from the very beginning our first episode about the film nebraska from Mm -hmm. uh about almost a year and a half ago. Um, yeah. And anyway, so that's how you can find us. So please find us. Please tell your friends about us. Uh, we love our listeners. Thank you for listening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, so let's talk about the film in question, Brazil. Um, okay, so Brazil takes place, as it says in the beginning, somewhere in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is a world that is highly bureaucratic and backwards uh it's a it seems to be a a mesh of both futuristic and outdated technology which is kind of unique and it kind of actually keeps this film from from becoming dated i would say yeah like I, yeah I would agree. like a lot of futuristic films that were made in the 80s or the 70s like you can watch them now and be like oh this is this is obviously what a 1970s vision of what the future <laughs> would be like like oh this is what I mean, okay. Uh, anyway, so Brazil is a very, very 
unique film. Um, the main character is Sam Lowry, who is kind of like a a cog in a, in a pencil pusher, pencil pusher, just like part of a machine, basically. Um, and he he works. Uh, what is what is his uh, department? Is the Ministry of Information? The Ministry of Information, right? So yes. in this world, you've got ministries. Uh, you've yeah. got it's it's. There's a lot of red tape. He works in uh, information services, right? Not information retrieval, <laughs> which are two different things, mind you. Keep that in mind. Very, very different things. And uh, he, you know, he dreams of literally soaring in the clouds, and and he sees this woman in his dreams, who's very alluring, and he's a lonely guy, and he's just kind of fed up with uh, with his lot in life. Um, mm-hmm. Most people around him seem to just kind of be down with whatever the way things are going yeah they're they are parts they're part of the machine yeah. they're part of the society it's a dystopian future where everyone is content to simply let the well they aren't necessarily content but they're living the life that the, the government has essentially afforded right. them. they're doing what they think that they should be doing and yes the kind of the uh the event that incites the central you know, mishap of Brazil is um, in the uh, is this the Ministry of Information is where they're typing up all those um, names for people that they're trying to arrest. Basically, am I right in the beginning? Yeah, <laughs> I just this, I just want to get this right because this we Andrew's, we don't need to get that that deep. I mean, like we're gonna get into another one of these ten minute plot descriptions if we go at this pace. All right, so it's he. There is a clerical error where a man named Buttle gets uh, mistakenly snatched up by the government in place of someone named Tuttle. And uh, it's due to just a simple computer glitch, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that uh, misunderstanding works its way into Sam Lowry's life. And he uh, tries to deal with it. And in dealing with it, uh, in a humane way, sort of starts this avalanche of kind of bureaucratic insanity. Right, and you know, there's a, there's sort of a general premise for you. I mean, the film is is so much more than that, um, but it's hard to sort of oh, contain yeah. in a, in a brief capsule summary. It is, um, but um, needless to say, he also spots his dream girl in real life. And he decides that he's going to take it upon himself to to win her, and then thus achieve you know some form of happiness. Yeah. Um, this movie, in the grand Terry Gilliam style, is filmed with a lot of low angles and wide angle lenses to yep. distort yep. everything and make make everything seem grotesque and larger than life. It's a very appropriate way to film this story, and the production design is is. Very grandiosity, yeah. Good, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's it's this, the production design is is excellent, and it all it does is it serves to dwarf the main character of Sam Lowry with its vast hallways and and buildings and humans in general. It's it's just meant to dwarf humanity and and take away people's humanity. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very philosophical film and a very 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 pointed satire that I think is, in my opinion, maybe the greatest film satire ever created. 
I remember when I was a kid, I used to look at the uh, the weekly TV guide that came with our newspaper every week, and it was um, it was from the Washington Post, and it would list all the movies that were being shown that week, day by day, and I would look at them, I would look at the review of each one, and it would say, you know, Heaven Can Wait, comedy, or uh, you know, The Thin Man or, or The Third Man, drama. Right. Or moonlighting, romance. And I saw the same keywords over and over again, uh, the same genre descriptions comedy, drama, romance, horror. You know, and that was, it was basically the same four or so that, that just always showed up. And then I saw there was a listening for this movie called Brazil, and there was a new genre word there. It's, <laughs> it said satire. And I was like, satire? <laughs> what is that? Yeah. What is that? And um, that wasn't the first time I saw Brazil. That wouldn't happen until many years later. But uh, um, it is most certainly a satire. And it's very, it's dark, very much so. But there's a lot of humor, dark humor. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a black comedy, to be sure. Yeah. I mean, when I said that, you know, it, it caused me, it deepened my appreciation for all things Monty Python. You know, it, there is a touch of that in here. There is that kind of sense of the absurd and and the the fun uh of making fun of institutions and yeah people who behave in absurd ways i mean gilliam seems to be having a great time uh lampooning and exposing all of these very dark depressing philosoph- philosophical ideas and and if if you were to look at brazil as somebody's vision of the world it's a horribly pessimistic version <laughs> yeah um, and yet the movie is created with so much joy and and happiness in a way um, yeah. because it's so visually stunning and um the performances are exuberant and fun and enjoyable i mean the people uh you know uh sam lowry's mother and her friend and the plastic surgeons who 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 work on them right like are played with such gusto and such zeal the the waiter at the restaurant that they go to who insists that Sam Lowry say the name of the number of his order out loud yeah uh like every supporting character uh uh Charles McKeown's character uh who works in the office next to Sam Lowry which is often cited as uh, like the most memorable scene from the film, which I, I find to be a, a strange statement. Uh, but people often talk about the physical comedy of this scene where he is placed in an office right next to somebody and they mm-hmm. there's a desk that is, the wall has basically split the desk in two, but the desk is still connected on either side. So if one person pulls on it, it, it shortens in the other person's office. Right. Uh, and there's this very funny like back and forth, but the character himself, played by Charles McEwen, is is so bizarre, but full of energy and life in his own existence. You know, yeah. Ian Holmes' character, who is one of my absolute favorite, plays a character called Mister Kurtzman, who is Sam Lowry's boss. It's such a magnificent performance, and of course, Ian Holmes has been in a number of Gilliam films, right? And is great in in all of them, but uh I, you know, I can't, I, I could not say enough good about this film. This is unquestionably one of my favorite films of all time, uh, easily in my top 10. Yeah. Um, I, last time I saw it was many years ago. And I remember 
I um, I rated it on the Internet Movie Database as a seven out of ten, and I went back and I, I looked at the page in preparation for this podcast, and, I, and yeah, you know, the IMDb folks will will save your rating, and if yep, you're if yep. you're logged in, it'll it'll have it listed right there, and I remember I was like, wow, seven out of ten, I think it deserves an eight, because <laughs> now now that I'm older, and and I I have my own ever-forming philosophy of the world, I can appreciate Brazil on an, a different level than I did years back. Um, yeah. And I remember uh, we, we, we watched this movie at the summer session at the School of the Arts in 1997. And I, dare I say that may have been the last time I saw it. Um, wow. Uh, maybe, anyway. That's the last time I remember seeing it. And I remember there was this... Uh, the summer session was a gaggle of like people from all walks of life who were interested in movies, and and after we watched Brazil, this one girl who was like this chain smoking North Carolina rural Southern girl was like, "How about that Brazil, huh? Yeah, what a great masterpiece! It's one of my favorite films." And uh, <laughs> like, was, was she being facetious? <laughs> yeah, she was being very sarcastic. Um, and then, and then, but then another friend of mine was like, "Oh, I fucking hate that girl! Like, oh, this movie's so good." And um, it's, it's. Uh, I have to say, I mean, it is. I definitely think it's one of the best movies ever made. Uh, it has such a singular point of view that's different from any other movie I could think of, and it's so consistent and so fleshed out with what its vision of dystopia is. And it's yeah. just, um, it's a really monumental film. Maybe this would be a good point to talk about some of the struggle that Terry Gilliam went through to actually get this movie released intact. And and goes through every time he makes a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it didn't get any easier after Brazil, apparently. No, it didn't. And it wasn't any easier before it either. Yeah, uh, yeah he this, this movie is famous for the kind of difficulty it had, uh, not getting made, but getting released. Mm-hmm. Um, he had made it for uh, Universal, yeah, and uh, midway through the sort of production of the film, the head of Universal changed. The head of the Motion Picture Division changed, and sort of they didn't really know what to do with the film, and it kind of got trapped in limbo because they didn't know how to market it. They didn't know what to do with it, mm-hmm. um, and Sid Sheinberg. Um, who was sort of the ultimate, you know, word in um, how the film would get released, would not release the film in the state that Terry Gilliam had created it. He had created a two-hour and 22-minute cut of the film, uh-huh. uh, and they wanted it trimmed, and they wanted it to have a happy ending because they said moviegoers would not go for a movie with such a sort of downbeat kind of, you know, conclusion, which it does have. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so this incited a war in Terry Gilliam's words uh-huh. between the two of them. That was rather spectacular in the way that it unfolds. And you can really get the whole story. If you watch the criterion release of this film, because the criterion release of this is spectacular. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's got a, a bevy of uh, really great, supplements and one of those supplements is a film called the battle battle for brazil which is about this kind of 
you know, competition between the two of these men and, uh, and, and how it all played out and clandestine screenings that, uh, Terry Gilliam organized for the film, uh-huh. you know, so that, that, so that it could be seen and so that word of mouth could spread. And he took out an, uh, an ad in variety, a full page ad in variety that just said, dear Sid Scheinberg, when are you going to release my film Brazil? Signed Terry Gilliam. Yeah. Which was unheard of. Yeah, it caused a big stink at the time. And Sid Scheinberg, to to state his position, he didn't want to completely shelve Brazil. He thought he no. thought there was a lot to offer. But what he wanted to do was trim it down to a 94-minute cut, which has been dubbed the Love Conquers All version, where it's the film is much more optimistic and doesn't make a lick of sense. I, no. I had never seen this cut until we did this show. And... The beginning of the Love Conquers All cut alone makes absolutely no freaking sense whatsoever. No sane studio head would ever try and pass that off as as a film. I mean, it's it doesn't make anyway. Some of the really good things <laughs> about Brazil can still be found in that cut, but but the fact that it's butchered, especially when in comparison with the full length version, it makes you know it's it's absolutely no. There's no reason. To ever want to release Love Conquers All. Um, yeah, and it's this is the version that made it onto television for syndication. Uh, uh-huh. The 94-minute cut made it onto television for syndication. And it is... So it was out there as like the definitive version of Brazil for a lot of people in the 80s and the 90s, you know, mm-hmm. who didn't know any better. Yeah. And uh, and and it, it, it is a fascinating look at you know, how that kind of battle can play out. We don't get a lot of battles like that anymore because, you know, with the advent of DVD and the sort of, uh, even before that, the kind of, uh, the Blade Runner director's cut was kind of the first big director's cut that was released that people watched and they said, whoa, this is, this is so much better than the theatrical cut that we had watched, you know, before. Um, People started to realize that sometimes the directors were right all along. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so there became a market for that. And then we got to a point where studios uh, started to try to capitalize on that market by withholding scenes from films so that they could put them on the DVDs and say, oh, uh, extended cut or unrated cut or right. you know, whatever the case is. There's more boobs in the uh, unrated yeah. cut. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't it or not not even necessarily more boobs. They just call it unrated because it wasn't approved for the MPAA for theatrical distribution, so they can call it unrated even though there's nothing unsavory in uh-huh. that cut. It's kind of an absurd sort of technicality. Yeah. Uh but you don't see that much anymore uh the the kind of things that would happen with Brazil or Blade Runner or Terminator 2 or you know any number of things you know eli roth's movie is green inferno yeah what was it what was the deal with that was that a movie that was being withheld by the studio it was being withheld by the studio because it was apparently so repulsive that they couldn't release it but i don't believe that (laughs) entirely um i think that there were some other problems with the production or with the release yeah but uh but it you know the i think that the, the the what they put out was that it was just so it couldn't be released in cinemas, yeah. which might be part of the marketing ploy in the first place. Because if you can put the, the human centipede, you know, movies in cinemas, mm-hmm. although to tell you the truth, as a connoisseur of really, really disgusting films, yeah, <laughs> which I am, uh, the human centipede isn't, I mean, it's gross, but it's not as gross as you think it is. The second one, 
is actually a little worse, even though it's in black and white. It's somehow worse. Yeah, a lot of people say that about the the first one is that it's kind of tame. It is, and I think you know the third one just came out, and I think uh, you know got universally panned as being just total garbage. So it's not like the the uh, classic that the first one was, right? <laughs> yeah, they've hated them all. But it, but my point being that if a studio is willing to release that in theaters, mm-hmm. there's no reason that they. Well, I don't know. Maybe the Green Inferno is just. <laughs> The most horrible thing on film. You know, I mean, even as ridiculous as the Love Conquers All cut is, I really, really enjoyed the fact that the filmmakers of the Battle for Brazil managed to score several interviews with the Universal uh, studio executives who were were around that time, which was actually 11 years earlier in 1985. And we actually got to hear their take on things. And they had a very lucid recollection of what went on. And it was, you know, actually fairly reasonable for the most That's part. That's exactly I mean, what I was going to say. They, yeah. they, I thought that they all made complete sense. These are guys who are running a business, okay? And, yeah, and they they, uh, they flat out say, one of them says that that Brazil is, is an art house picture. It's not a commercial picture. It's not going to be successful on a wide scale. And you can't, you know, you're kind of like, well, why did it? Well, huh. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, these guys understand the movie industry, and now it's a business for better or for worse. And um, they, they made a lot of sense. I thought they were all coming across as very level-headed in the matter. Um, yeah. But, uh, but at the same time, I was like, eh, sorry, Brazil's a masterpiece. Well, yeah, because yeah, when you get down to it, the ultimate conclusion that you have to come to is, well, Terry Gilliam was right about all of this. Yeah. <laughs> Like it does, it doesn't make sense to change it the way that they wanted to. And if you, they don't have this in the uh, Criterion version. But if you watch the theatrical cut that was, you know, the North American theatrical cut, it's also different from the director's cut. It's not as drastically different as the Love Conquers All version. Uh-huh. But the theatrical cut is a significantly different film. And uh, and this one that we have here on the Criterion version is the director's cut, which was also the international release, which while all of this drama was happening, the film was already playing overseas. I think 20th Century Fox had picked it up for overseas distribution. It was already playing in, in its form, but they just decided that American audiences were idiots, I guess. Yeah, that's so interesting to me that you've got two different studios distributing the same film domestically and internationally. And you've got different versions of the film. You've got different poster artwork. You've got different receptions that the film is getting. Uh, it's just kind of fascinating. And to you mentioned this earlier, Andrew, that people, the executives were complaining that the film was too long. And one of the executives gave a very pragmatic answer about how, yeah. you know, you, if a movie's too long, you can't show it twice in one evening. Well, yep. look, I just say look to James Cameron's Titanic for... Uh, if you want to refute that theory nowadays, they've got movies playing on multiple screens so they can get away with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the, the, the multiplex, the big, you know, big cinemas that are 10 screens or more that sort of came around in the, in the mid nineties. Yeah. They allowed for that kind of, uh, movie going experience, right. Where, where they could, they could put a movie on two or three or four or five screens and they could have as many showings in an evening as they want to. Mm -hmm. Um, but back in 1985, you know, most theaters were small theaters. Yeah. 
uh, you know, they were three, four, five screens. Maybe a big theater would be eight screens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's not unfathomable from a from a, a business perspective for them to think that way. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, there's been so many movies that were two and a half hours long leading up to 1985. It seemed like kind of an arbitrary reason that he was giving. He did. He wanted to sort of excuse himself from having to make a judgment call on the actual <laughs> content of the film so he just right. attacked the running time which which seemed to be it's 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 you know that seemed to be the ultimate kind of thing is that they didn't understand the film and they didn't appreciate the message of the film and they didn't appreciate the sort of that kind of very cynical worldview right yeah um that's what they didn't want to show american audiences and the mid 80s was not really a time for you know cynical worldview pictures at least when when it came to blockbusters right right there's a lot of like america you know first like we're you know defeating communism kind of stuff yeah um so it's not surprising uh that they didn't particularly love this film but uh i mean this is one of the great as i said one of the great satires if not my favorite satire ever it's one of the great science fiction films Mm -hmm. it's one of the great comedies yeah (laughs) it's you know, I mean, it's so great in so many ways. And I I really, you know, this, this film resonates with me. And, and Gilliam as a filmmaker in general resonates with me. I mean, 12 Monkeys is another of my favorite films. Time Bandits is another of my favorite films. Mm-hmm. You know, these are all really, really glorious, incredible films. The Fisher King, of course, which Criterion is about to release. Yeah. It's great. And um, there's a lot of imagination there's a lot of there's a very unique worldview and just last week they announced that terry terry gilliam had come to an agreement with amazon.com to finally make his film the man who shot john don quixote and uh and they're going to release that uh-huh and uh that it's going to be in a theatrical release and then available exclusively on Amazon. And then additionally, they have uh, inked a deal for him to do a mini series called the defective detective. That's going to be like eight episodes or something like that. Sounds interesting. So, and Amazon has been very good thus far with their creative projects of letting their creatives really do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. So I, this may be the first time in Terry Gilliam's life that he doesn't, he might he might run into budgetary issues because he usually tends to dream bigger than the people who are making his films want to spend. But uh, I'm very interested. Yeah, that is interesting because I remember when uh, the documentary Lost in La Mancha came out uh, like eight years ago or something or ten years ago. Yeah. And uh, did I say the man who shot? I meant the man who killed. Yeah, him. I think yeah. you're conflating that with the man who shot Liberty. Man shot, which which we just did as a, an episode not long but, uh, ago. Yeah, it's. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be the same cast, which is a shame because you had um, – I don't remember his name, but he was a great French actor. Jean Rochefort. Yes, yes, that's it. And then Johnny Depp was playing the Sancho Panza character. Uh, it was uh, – it, it looked great. And it, the whole film was beset with you know, catastrophe and, and well, that... weather-related catastrophe and the health catastrophe of the actors. And... Yeah. And, and that, that documentary is a, a... – 
very, very fascinating documentary about movie making and what can go wrong. Yeah, I think in the process, Terry Gilliam has got to be the most energetic director I can think of. He's just full of energy and he pours that energy into his films. Uh, well, he's got so much love for what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, he just has like unabashed love for everything that he's doing, you know? Yeah. It's, it's really, I, I just love, love watching everything that he does. Incidentally, the new cast for uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote is uh, John Hurt in the John Rochefort nice. uh, position and uh, Jack O'Connell oh. in the uh, Johnny Depp role. Oh. He was in uh, Unbroken. That oh, right. He was holding that wooden plank. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting choice for Sancho Panza. Yeah, uh, it's it's going to be a fascinating thing. And also, Defective Detective is written by Terry Gilliam and Richard Lagravenez, uh-huh. who did The Fisher King. They worked together on The Fisher King, so right. that is very exciting. Yeah, so you can sort of see where me and understand about Brazil. It's a great film, one of the best films. And uh, please check it out if you haven't seen it already. Absolutely. Criterion uh, recently reissued their box set on Blu-ray. And uh, it looks amazing. It's um, beautiful. It's, uh. It's, uh, it's a treat for the, for the senses. Uh, any, any film buff out there, don't listen to what that North Carolina girl said. <laughs> See Brazil. You won't regret it. No, you will not. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, it comes with my highest recommendation. So stay tuned for our next episode. Uh, it's going to be a listener's choice about a film called Wrestling. Wrestling. Or Wrestling, as the, the North Carolina release is called. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love North Carolina. All right. So uh, stick around for that episode, and we'll see you later. <laughs>